And there we go. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to the uh, last presentation for 2021. And uh, boy, this year just scooted by, didn't it? All right, interesting topic, I hope today, um, kind of topical. We're gonna talk about inflammation and immunity, etc. So let's begin. Suppose that you have just stubbed your toe. What happens? Well, it gets red, gets hot, swells, and you start uh, screaming in pain. What you're experiencing is an inflamed toe. Now that term inflammation is much uh, bandied about without uh, a lot of understanding of what it actually means. Hopefully we can clarify this for you. Bit of history. We go back about 2000 years to the Roman encyclopedist uh, Cornelius Celsus. He wrote a, a, a work called De Medica, which is a, a work about uh, everything that was known at that time about medicine. Some of it is really quite insightful. Uh, they certainly used opium. They knew about that for uh, killing pain. He also talked about fever and um, the fact that uh, once a fever subsides, the disease goes away. So he thought that fever was a protective uh, mechanism for the body. But also he was um, you know, into bloodletting, which was par for the course in those days. So it was kind of a mixed bag. <clears throat> but the reason that I'm uh, mentioning him is because he was the first one to describe a condition with four signs. Tumor, dolor, calor, and rubor. Those are Latin for swelling, pain, uh, uh, heat, and redness. And those, of course, are the classic uh, signs of inflammation. We can add something else to this, uh, which is uh, basically loss of function, because when all of these go together, for example, in uh, an injured elbow, you feel the pain, you f find that it does get hot and uh, reds and swells, and, and of course you have trouble uh, moving it. So this is uh, a par for the course in terms of what happens with inflammation. So those are the classic signs of inflammation. First noted 2000 years ago, pain, heat, redness, swelling. But of course, uh, this is uh, unfortunately still with us today. <clears throat> Celsus would have had no explanation for what is going on <clears throat> at the uh, molecular level. I mean, you know, their understanding of physiology in those days was, was very, very rudimentary. Today, uh, we know really an amazing amount of detail about what actually happens in, in inflammation. And I'm not going to, to uh, saddle you with all of those details. I, I try to make this as simple as, as, as possible, but uh, I, I think it is also important to know that a lot is known here and a lot more than you know, what I can uh, describe here. But the reason that you have the swelling and the redness and the heat is because there's a change in the blood flow to the affected area and the small blood vessels become dilated so that more blood can be delivered. 
There's also a change in the permeability of the uh, walls of the blood vessel so that substances can leak out from the blood vessel into the surrounding tissue where injury has occurred because it is these substances that leak out that are going to resolve the, the problem. So the fluid from the bloodstream starts to leak out. It contains some clotting factors because the body tries to choke off the uh, flow of substances that are causing the problem, such as bacteria or viruses perhaps, away from that, uh, that area into the rest of the body. So it tries to tie up some of the small blood vessels. So they're the clotting factors. And then of course, there are the white blood cells, which are the, the body's uh, uh, army of protective cells and also antibodies, uh, which can neutralize offending organisms like viruses and, uh, and bacteria. And all of this happens in response to what are known as chemical mediators. Some of these you may have heard of, histamine, which of course it plays a role in, in allergies and the cytokines, which have been talked about in context of COVID-19, prostaglandins, which, which are important in, in triggering fever and, and drugs that are prostaglandin inhibitors like aspirin reduce uh, fever. So there is a lot of interesting science that is going on here. Uh, let's see if we can put this uh, in to a pictorial fashion. So here is a, a, a blood vessel, and you can see the uh, blood vessel here and the surrounding tissue. And there are possible injuries here. For example, you know, just a, a, a piece of wood, uh, you know, or, or a virus or bacteria, and uh, these cause injuries to the tissue. This is when the body's immune system reacts and it reacts by first causing inflammation. Now, it <clears throat> should be understood that inflammation in this case is not a bad thing. It is in fact the first sign that healing is going to, to happen because the white blood cells, the leukocytes, leak out from the blood vessel into the surrounding tissue to start to gobble up the bacteria and the, the viruses and to, to also destroy the damaged tissue. The, again, the, the science here is, is well understood. And we know that the white blood cells leak out of the blood vessel and they can attack the diseased organisms which have been targeted by the antibodies. And of course, if you stub your toe, it eventually heals, right? So uh, obviously all of this activity comes in handy. It, it works because there will be a resolution of the inflammation. How does that happen? Well, again, here there is a, a lot of underlying uh, biochemistry that, that is known. So once the white blood cells and the, the antibodies and the clotting factors have done their job, then it is time to get on with life and to get back to normalcy. So the body will then begin to release what are known as anti-inflammatory compounds that will reverse all of this activity that has been going on, stop the leakage of, of fluid into, into the tissues, wind down the production of, of uh, uh, antibodies, prevent white blood cells from infiltrating the, the area. Uh, 
Now, again, this is very, very complex business, and uh, it is just stunning how much is actually known about it. But I, I'll just give you a tiny little taste here. Some of these anti-inflammatory compounds derive from fatty acids. Uh, and the three classes that I mentioned here, the lipoxins, the resolvents, and, and the myrcins, are all formed in the body from uh, fatty acids. And uh, these are anti-inflammatory. These are the, the signaling molecules that tell the body, okay, it is now time to get back to normal. And we've neutralized all the offending substances and the healthy cells now can start to uh, regenerate. Now, I mentioned that uh, uh, these uh, anti-inflammatory substances derive from fatty acids, which of course are found in the diet. And this is why you have often heard that eating fish or taking fish oil supplements can be helpful against inflammation. Uh, arthritis, as we'll see later, is a, is a type of chronic inflammation. And uh, there is some evidence that taking omega-3 fats or eating fish uh, can help. So once these lipoxins, resolvents, and mericins have, have sent out the signal, to stop all the uh, inflammatory activity, then the healing can begin. And the cells that have survived the attack, that is the, the healthy cells, will then begin to regenerate and, and multiply. Now things are not always perfect because sometimes the damage has been too significant to, to heal completely. For example, if there's been a significant burn, uh, or a bad cut, then you know that although healing occurs, there are remnants of, of scar tissue, for example. It mostly is due to the buildup of collagen in the uh, affected area. And sometimes when the, the body is really struggling to get rid of the offending organism, mostly when it's a bacterial infection, then uh, pus begins to ooze out. Well, that pus is just a collection of, of dead cells and bacteria. And the body obviously is trying to get rid of these, trying to excrete them. And uh, it's a process called suppuration. And this can be a complication of, of healing because, you know, I mean, healing doesn't always progress so readily. It depends on the extent of the insult to the body. But in the case of, of the example that we started out with, the stubbed toe, of course, that will heal and there will be no uh, remnants. But in other cases, as I said, such as with a burn or with, with a bad cut, uh, even though there is healing uh, during the acute inflammatory phase, uh, there still may be some remnants like a scar tissue. So, so far, seeing that, that uh, the inflammatory response is a good thing because it helps with healing. Unfortunately, inflammation can also be harmful because if something goes awry and the signals to turn off the inflammation don't become active, then the inflammation continues. And it can also happen when the body makes a mistake and starts to, to activate the immune system uh, against something that isn't really damaging. That's what an allergy is all about. It's the body's reaction to a substance that 
doesn't really mean to cause it uh, any harm, such as pollen or sometimes a component in, in food, you know, typically some protein in, in peanut, for example. So when inflammation does not subside, the term that we use is that it can become chronic. And when inflammation becomes chronic, then we're looking at uh, a potential problem that can be quite serious. When does this happen? If you have repeated episodes of acute inflammation, if you are constantly stubbing your toe, eventually there's going to be low-grade inflammation there and it never completely heals. Sometimes there are organisms, for example, tuberculosis bacterium would be a classic example, that take foothold in the body and the body has a very difficult time getting rid of it, but it struggles and it struggles to, to do so. So it keeps activating the immune reaction. However, when that happens, you have this low-grade uh, inflammation, which as you'll see in a minute, can have other consequences. And uh, then of course we have the autoimmune diseases where the body makes really a major mistake and it attacks a part of the body that isn't doing any harm. For example, in, in diabetes, uh, there might be action against the pancreas, which reduces the amount of insulin that it produces. Or in the case of arthritis, the body starts attacking its own joints. Now, exactly why this happens uh, is a big mystery. Sometimes it is triggered, as I said, by, by just constant level of acute inflammations that pile one upon the other. Sometimes it can be food that triggers it, it all. But this, uh, this has been uh, investigated uh, quite extensively. And uh, let's just take a look at this. Uh, th these are all of the uh, potential causes of chronic uh, inflammation. So uh, we start at the top uh, left here. Uh, you can see the, the possibility of, of uh, you know, just too many acute cases of acute in infection. And uh, if you don't pay attention to taking care of wounds, for example, uh, that can result in long-term uh, inflammation. Then the autoimmune disorders, which we already uh, talked about, uh, possibly exposure to chemicals. Small exposures to, to asbestos, for example, can trigger uh, chronic uh, inflammation. Uh, allergies, we already uh, mentioned. Unfortunately, old age. Well, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But uh, as we get older, the chance of, of uh, chronic inflammation increases. Unhealthy diets, which of course we will explore in detail in a moment. Uh, alcohol, uh, smoking, drugs uh, can lead to inflammation. Chronic stress. This is a, a tough one to deal with because it's very uh, difficult in the first place to define what stress is because it's not the same thing for, for everyone. But as a general rule, I would say that, that stress is being in a situation that you don't want to be in. That is what stress is, uh, is all about. But as I said, it's, it's not 
the same for everyone. Uh, public speaking is a classic example. Uh, I think quite obviously for me, public speaking is not stressful, but uh, for many people, they say that it's, it's the most stressful thing that they ever encounter. And for those people that can result in, in chronic low level inflammation. Obesity, this is very clear, very clear that that is, is linked with uh, chronic inflammation. Uh, and then of course, there are also it's always the possibility of genetic conditions. <clears throat> so we mentioned this business of, of chronic inflammation. How do we know that it exists? How do we measure such a thing? Well, it is measurable because the hallmark of chronic inflammation is the, the constant activity by white blood cells that are trying to solve a problem which actually may not exist. This is the whole problem with chronic inflammation. But we'll see in a moment how we know that this is actually underway. It is an important thing to know because as Time Magazine presented in, in this uh, classic uh, cover story, chronic inflammation is indeed a killer. Well, today it's not that secret anymore because we talk a great deal uh, about it. But the reason that, that it is so often a subject of discussions is because there's a lot of evidence now that chronic inflammation leads to a large variety of, of conditions. So we've established now that chronic inflammation can be caused by a number of factors. We just discussed obesity and stress and all of these things. And then when it finally presents, it itself becomes a causative factor for all the conditions that I've mentioned here. Cancer, neurological problems, lung problems, bone problems, mostly arthritis, metabolic disorders like diabetes, cardiovascular disease. This is when the body keeps attacking deposits in the arteries, trying to clean them away without much success. That results in, in chronic inflammation. And then you of course have the autoimmune disorders like Crohn's disease, colitis, uh, lupus, uh, uh, et cetera. So chronic inflammation is, is a real concern. Now we get back to this question that I just asked a minute ago. How do we know that this is happening? How do we know that one should be concerned about chronic inflammation? We know this because there are markers of inflammation that can be tested for in, in the blood. Because when all of this inflammatory activity is underway, and I described to you the complex system here of, of white blood cells, antibodies uh, being introduced at the site of, of injection, there's a lot of chemistry that is involved there as these white blood cells unleash a whole weaponry of molecules to try to neutralize invaders. And these markers can be tested for. C-reactive protein is a classic one. The um, uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate or very often called the SED rate is how quickly red blood cells settle in, in, in uh, adult plasma. They thickness of the blood, that is the plasma. And then you have various uh, uh, proteins like interleukin-6 and uh, amino acids like homocysteine, uh, fibrinogen, which is involved in blood clotting. So all of these can be tested in, uh, in the blood. And this is a sign that some sort of, of uh, 
inflammatory process is underway. Then of course, the most important question to ask is what can you do about this? If there is some inflammatory process that is going on, and in fact, uh, it may have been actually diagnosed to blood tests that you know that some of your markers are high, what can be done? Obviously, there are medications. Uh, there are all kinds of so-called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The classic one, of course, being aspirin. And uh, we know the mechanism of aspirin. It interferes with the formation of prostaglandins, which I mentioned are some of these immune modulators. And then there's ibuprofen, uh, the active ingredient in Advil. And uh, these uh, are very effective in controlling the symptoms of, uh, of inflammation. These are not curative. It doesn't cure the underlying condition. However, it, it reduces the, the symptoms. On a, if more serious medications are indicated, then a physician will reach for the prescription pad and prescribe a corticosteroid of which prednisone is the, the classic example. Uh, these are more serious drugs. Uh, they can be extremely effective for some, uh, especially some autoimmune diseases like, like arthritis but uh, they also come with a significant amount of baggage because uh, long-term use of uh, corticosteroids results in a whole collage of, of side effects. The, the fat deposition around the body changes. Uh, it can have an effect on, on bone, uh, bone structure. Uh, these, these drugs should not be used casually. They should only be used when uh, a physician deems that uh, there is significant inflammation that cannot be handled in any other way. Of course, what we would like to do is to have simpler ways of handling this uh, chronic inflammation. And the question that we ask, is it possible to eat our way out of the problem? Because let's face it, food is the only raw material that ever goes into our body. So it stands to reason that it can have an effect on what is going on inside of our body. And indeed, that is the case. There's been a very significant amount of research in this area. And there are numerous books that have been published about an anti-inflammatory diet, foods that fight inflammation. Um, and uh, you go into any bookstore these days, you will see aisles and aisles and aisles of, of uh, books like this. Of course, there are all kinds of diet books, but the anti-inflammatory diet today seems to be uh, generating a great deal of, uh, of interest. Of course, what we look for here is the science. Is there really any? Well, there actually is. There is... Uh, a scale that has been developed that tests for the anti-inflammatory potential and the inflammatory potential of certain, <coughs> certain foods. And this is the Dietary Inflammatory Index. This is actually a very complex thing. And researchers have scrutinized the scientific literature, isolated all relevant studies that have looked at food and its effect on the body. 
well, how do you study the effect of food on the body? You do this by trying to associate it with these markers that I've talked about. So there are classically these six inflammatory markers, uh, which are, are, are listed here. And uh, many, many researchers have looked at these markers relative to people's diets. And they've managed to put together uh, a scale whereby every food that you may ingest or even specific nutrients, individual nutrients, has a numerical value associated with it. And if you give someone a food questionnaire and they fill it out properly in terms of all the foods that they're eating, it is possible using a complex formula to calculate the dietary inflammatory uh, index. So I'll give you an example, simple example here. Some foods are anti-inflammatory. Now, what that means is that when these foods are eaten, those markers that I've talked about, whether it's the uh, sedimentation rate or the CRP protein, those are reduced. Whereas the opposite is true for the pro-inflammatory uh, foods. I, I think that uh, nothing here would be surprising. Uh, I think uh, most people would recognize that it is better to eat from the left-hand side of this table than the right-hand side. And uh, so you, you, know, you see some of the classic ones here, uh, turmeric and, and fiber and, and beta carotene, tea, garlic, the omega-3 fats. These are all anti-inflammatory. And then you have the pro-inflammatory, eating too much protein, eating too much iron, too much sugar, uh, too much cholesterol, just too many calories terms of, of energy, trans fats, total fat intake, saturated fat. These are all the pro-inflammatory. Nothing surprisingly here, I think we would all expect that a diet that fights inflammation is the diet that features lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, whereas the pro-inflammatory diet is the kind of diet that unfortunately is, is very prevalent in, uh, in North America. So what do we learn here? Nothing new really, because this is the song that we've been singing now for many years, that when you do your shopping, you should do it around the periphery of the store, fill that shopping bag with lots of fruits and vegetables, and stay away from all the processed foods that are in the middle of the, of the store. So now we have uh, somewhat of an understanding that there is this uh, dietary inflammatory index and that specific foods can be ranked and that the advice is that we should be eating from the foods that are mostly anti-inflammatory. The next question we have to ask, is there any evidence that this really works? That is that if you stick to one of these diets, it pays off. There is. Here's a meta-analysis and a meta-analysis is, is, is the kind of study that we pay a great deal of attention to because a meta-analysis is a study of studies. And what researchers do in this case is go through the scientific literature and pull out all of the relevant studies. Uh, as you no, know, I'm, 
sure that I've mentioned many times in, in the past, we never pay great deal of attention to any single study. That's not how science works. You wait until there's a buildup of information, until there's some sort of scientific consensus. And that's what you arrive at with a meta-analysis, where you select the most relevant studies that are published in the peer-reviewed literature, and you combine all of the data to see what it shows. Because errors will kind of even out. So you should be left with a proper conclusion. And as you can see in this meta-analysis between the dietary inflammatory index and cancer, that is you survey people and you look at their diet and you calculate the dietary uh, inflammatory index. And then you take a look at diseases that they suffer from. And it turns out that people who have a low index, that is that they're eating too many inflammatory foods are more likely to succumb to cancer or at least to be diagnosed with it. The same thing was found for cardiovascular disease. The uh, mortality was positively associated with uh, a diet uh, that had a high uh, index. So it means that it's worthwhile to pay attention to, to the, this uh, uh, inflammatory uh, index. And again, it's not all that complicated. In this particular case here, looking at cardiovascular disease, it is as one suspects. It's the same kind of diet that, that we recommend for many other reasons, for, for reducing heart disease by reducing cholesterol, you know, uh, deposits in the arteries. This is the same kind of diet that we rec recommend. In fact, there's a, a, a lot of um, coinciding data here, because it turns out that when you start to have deposits in the coronary arteries, that triggers inflammation as the body tries to get rid of those deposits. So when we were recommending a, a low cholesterol diet, you're also recommending a low uh, inflammatory index diet. Again, there's nothing much surprising here. We know that the standard North American diet with a lot of processed foods and the fried foods and all of the soft drinks, uh, is not as good as the fruits and the green vegetables, the nuts, and then the fish and the, uh, and the olive oil. To, uh, I think to, to summarize this, it is best to look at the Mediterranean uh, diet pyramid. Of course, there's more than one Mediterranean diet. I mean, let's face it, you know, I mean, the diet in, in Greece is not exactly the same as the diet in, in Lebanon. It's not the same as the diet in <clears throat> Southern France or, or in uh, Italy. But when you do a close examination of <clears throat> all of the diets around the Mediterranean and, and you pull the results, this is what you come up with. And this is also the diet that has the uh, the lowest inflammatory index. Whole grains, meaning no, no baguettes, no, you know, it's not the refined flour that, that we want. Lots of fruits and vegetables. Olive oil is the main cooking oil. And this comes up repeatedly in all of these studies. Whether we're talking about specifically cancer prevention, heart disease prevention, diabetes prevention, or anti-inflammatory diet, olive oil constantly comes into into the picture. And the main flesh food should be the fish. 
eggs, cheese, poultry less often, and meats only for special occasions as, as sweets. Uh, again, as uh, I mentioned you know, in many, many of these talks, I never say never about anything because uh, life does, doesn't work like that. We don't need to evaluate you know, every bite that we eat in terms of is it good for us or not. Sometimes you eat things just because you like them. But I, I think the Mediterranean pyramid here is, is very useful because uh, it has a, a quantitative aspect uh, to it. So just by quickly looking at it, you, see, you can see that the uh, ratio of, of uh, fruits and vegetables that we should be eating uh, to the meat uh, is far in favor of the fruits and, and vegetables. <clears throat> but there's something else about the anti-inflammatory potential of, of our life. Obviously, diet can play a major role, but so does exercise. And again, when you measure these parameters that we just uh, talked about, uh, whether it's the interleukin or whether the C-reactive protein, exercise reduces chronic inflammation. Now, in this particular case, yes, it's a nice headline and, and uh, you know, it's a, a nice pictorial, uh, but you've got to look at the actual study and read the fine print and uh, realize that it's an interesting study, but it was done on mice. And humans, of course, are not giant mice. So although we can't directly extrapolate such a study to, to humans, the evidence is just overwhelming that exercise is good for all kinds of, of, of reasons. So now we have established what inflammation is, and that acute inflammation is useful because this is the way the body heals itself. Chronic inflammation is not. This is that's a problem uh, that has to be uh, addressed. But inflammation uh, occurs when the immune system uh, recognizes something in the body as undesirable. What if that undesirable thing is a virus, like the SARS-CoV-2 virus? The immune system goes into action, you get inflammation, uh, et cetera, in which case it's desired, right? You wanna get rid of that offending organism. And this is where this expression that we are hearing so much these days comes into play. Can we boost the immune system? This is especially uh, topical now, of course, because everyone is worried about this virus and we want to get rid of it. So the question is, can you boost the immune system to kind of knock this out? <clears throat> well, we've already had a little bit of preamble here from what I've, I've, I've uh, discussed up to now, that acute inflammation is good right? It gets rid of an offending substance. But if it has to struggle against that unsuccessfully, then it becomes chronic inflammation, in which case it's, it's a problem. So it isn't absolutely clear that even if you could, that you would always want to boost immune activity. For example, if someone is suffering from arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, you don't want to boost immunity. So let's discuss this in a bit of detail. Boosting. Well, you can certainly boost your car battery. 
right? There's no question about that. You can do exercise and boost the size of your muscles. You can even boost your Wi-Fi signal. There are devices that can do that. But when it comes to the immune system, the term just doesn't make any sense for the reasons that I will now explain. The immune system is not one thing that can be boosted. It's not like a car battery. The immune system is a very complex system. It has evolved to differentiate normal body parts from abnormal ones. The abnormal ones are the, the, the splinters, the stubbed toe, the, the uh, bacteria, the viruses, the, the environmental chemicals to which we may be uh, exposed. The immune system fights against all of these, but it's a very complicated system. It's multifaceted. There are organs that are involved. There are cells that are involved. There are various proteins and various kinds of biochemicals. I mean, this is a, a whole army that the immune system can bring to bear on an offender. The parts of the immune system, the tonsils, your tears, of course, you wash things out from your eye, the thymus gland, your spleen, all of these are involved in immune activity. And there are all kinds of cells that are involved. These are essentially manufactured in the bone marrow, but there are numerous different kinds of cells. Neutrophils, the ones we've talked about, are the white blood cells that, that attack foreign uh, invaders. So this is a very, very complex system. We are born with what we call innate immunity. For example, the skin, right? That's an immune protector. That things don't easily get through the skin. We have our mucous membranes, the tears, which wash out things from our eye. Uh, the reason the stomach is acidic is to, to neutralize uh, intruders. So the, the, the body has this in, innate immunity, <clears throat> but then there's also adaptive immunity. And the best example of that is, is of course, the vaccine. Uh, this is the only way that you can quote boost immunity by a vaccine because a vaccine allows the immune system to attack, adapt to some foreign substance. And we're injecting with a vaccine, we're injecting one specific substance against one specific antigen. The antigen is whatever is, is causing the, the problem. So we want to stimulate antibody protection against it. This is what all the COVID vaccines do. So with a vaccine, it does make sense that you're boosting the immune system. But other than that, as I just demonstrated, the immune system is unbelievably complex. So when someone says you're gonna boost the immune system, what part of it are you going to boost? Are you going to, to, to boost the, the stomach to produce more acid to ward off infections? Are you going to produce more tears to wash things out of your eye? Are you going to somehow stimulate the liver to crank out substances? It just doesn't work like that. Uh, the the uh, idea of, of boosting the immune system is not a scientific idea, it's a marketing idea. And it is mired in all kinds of myths. Now there certainly are products out there. I mean, you've seen them. 
all kinds of pills, <clears throat> supplements that are supposed to boost the immune system or give immune support or give you immune defense or <clears throat> foods that are going to boost your immunity or juices that you can drink to boost your immunity. There is one kernel of truth to all of this <clears throat> in the sense that obviously anything that goes into our body has a chance of affecting <clears throat> what happens in the body. <clears throat> and what we eat, of course, affects almost everything that goes on in the body because it's the only raw material that ever goes into our body. So it's, it's certainly possible that having a very poor diet is going to impair health and having a good diet is going to be beneficial in every way, including functioning of the immune system. So yes, by eating in a healthy way, you can improve the way your body behaves in general. But in terms of specific ingredients to boost immune action, there's just no evidence of that. Now, one could, of course, try to, to present it as if, you know, if there were significant findings here. I'll give you an example. Eating seafood salad may boost immune function. <clears throat> okay, that's an interesting headline. And it comes from a very legitimate study. The study was done in, uh, properly by researchers. It was published in a peer reviewed uh, journal. But what did it actually do? They looked at seaweed extracts in a test tube and exposed cells to this and measured the activity that occurs in those cells in terms of uh, anti-inflammatory uh, activity. Well, this is in cells. That's a long way from what happens in, in, in the body. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating a seaweed salad or having this kind of seaweed <clears throat> wafers as, as dessert, if you can stomach the, the, the smell and the taste of this thing. But just because an extract of these showed some benefit in a laboratory study doesn't mean that it has any kind of effect in, in a human. First of all, as a general rule, the doses that are used in those laboratory studies are far greater than what a person would be exposed to. So there are numbers that are, uh, are involved. But of course, it's a very seductive idea that you can consume specific nutrients and improve your immune system. Now, once again, you can dredge up studies that would kind of suggest that this may be possible. However, you have to read in between the lines. For example, let's look at zinc. Zinc is an essential nutrient. It is found in a number of enzymes and uh, many of those are involved in the functioning of the immune system. We know that, that zinc is, is crucial for the normal development and functioning of cells. But we also know that we don't need very much of it. We need only a few milligrams every day, about eight for men and 11 for women. As a general rule, you don't want to overdo this because more is not better. And the upper limit is about 40 milligrams per day. <clears throat> this is not difficult to get your eight or 11 milligrams because zinc is found in all kinds of foods. 
if you eat meat at all, you're not going to have any kind of zinc uh, deficiency. If you eat any seafood, you eat whole grains, you're not going to have a zinc deficiency because the zinc is found in, in all kinds of foods. <laughs> I mean, uh, oysters, of course, are a classic example. They're very high in zinc, but it doesn't mean that you have to eat oysters to get your zinc because uh, as you can see, beef and tofu and, and lentils and oatmeal, all of these have some zinc. So deficiency in North America is extremely unlikely, but you don't want to overdo this either because an excess of zinc can actually suppress immune function. So you wanna be in kind of the Goldilocks zone, just the right amount, but it's not difficult to be there because as I said, zinc is found in all kinds of, of foods. Now, when it, it comes to, to COVID, uh, there's some interesting stuff here because it turns out that if you are extremely low on zinc, which in North America would be very unusual, uh, although there are people who have unusual diets, you know, who uh, don't eat any kind of varied diet at all. And uh, so in, in this particular case, what they found was that indeed people who were most affected by, uh, by COVID had low levels of zinc. However, they probably had low levels of all kinds of other nutrients too, because they had a very, very poor diet. The fact is that if you have a diet that supplies the eight to 11 milligrams of zinc, there's absolutely no evidence that you can boost your immune system by taking more. And you don't want to overdo it. You sure don't want to go above 50 milligrams of, of zinc a day because it very quickly uh, becomes toxic and uh, you can permanently lose your sense of taste by overdosing on, on, on zinc. There's also a lot of talk uh, about uh, immune health these days and vitamin D and the role that it, it plays. Now, once again, Vitamin D is a very important substance because it's multifunctional. It does so many different things in the body, as you can see. It of course is very important in, in uh, absorbing calcium to help your bones uh, grow. And indeed it is also important in the functioning of the uh, immune system. And it turns out that uh, when you do an analysis of people who are very severely affected by COVID-19, they tend to have low vitamin D uh, levels. Again, uh, in order to have a low vitamin D level, you would have to have a pretty unbalanced diet, but there are a lot of people who have unbalanced uh, diets. In the case of vitamin D, because it has so many different functions in the body, I would say that this is not a bad idea to take. And taking 1,000 to 2,000 units a day is certainly safe enough. It, it cannot do any harm. And it may do some good, especially in our climate here, where in the winter, we don't not, do not get enough sunshine. But it isn't a specific immune system booster. Uh, it may have some activity. You know, if, if someone is too low in their vitamin D intake and their immune system function, uh, malfunctions because of that, restoring the normal level, that may be beneficial. But again, taking more doesn't mean that you boost the immune system. There's a big difference between taking in adequate amount of nutrients to make sure that everything in the body works well, as opposed to the concept that if you take more, you're going to give it an extra boost. No. 
This is something that you hear so often with vitamin C because it is probably the one that is most frequently mentioned when it comes to boosting immunity. A lot of this goes back to Dr. Linus Pauling, double Nobel Prize winner, one of the, the uh, top chemists of the last century. And uh, indeed, uh, he uh, almost got the structure of DNA all by himself before Crick and Watson. But that is not what the lay public knows him for. The lay public mostly knows him for the promotion of vitamin C, which is a somewhat unfortunate because Pauling was a great scientist, published numerous papers and, and textbooks. I mean, the, his textbook about the covalent bond is still used around the world. But then somehow he became totally non-scientific when it came to vitamin C, basing his views totally on anecdotal evidence, not on published literature. And uh, he garnered a lot of fame with the publication of vitamin C and the common cold based on his own personal experience and that, that of his, his wife. But because he was uh, so highly respected Nobel prize winner, people started to gulp vitamin C, even though the studies that were done did not show that an excess of vitamin C other than the, the few milligrams that are needed every day to ward off scurvy, uh, that those were uh, of any uh, benefit. Now, once again, you can show in studies that if someone has a deficiency of vitamin C, that, I mean, extreme deficiency, of course, causes scurvy, but even moderate deficiency can impair the way the body functions. So it can have an effect on, on immune activity. But once again, you do not need all that much vitamin C. It's readily available in, in the diet. Now, I don't, uh, I don't think that taking, you know, up to a thousand milligrams a day uh, is any risk. Uh, in some rare cases, it can give you diarrhea, but even that's not, that's not very uh, common. But there's just no good evidence that it does any good, except of course, for the people who sell it. It's a high profit item, it's very cheap to produce, and it can also give you some expensive urine. Now, based upon, you know, the, the notion that, that very low levels impair immune function, you get all these kind of things on the internet. Slices of lemon and a cup of hot water can save your life. Hot lemon can kill proliferation of the novel coronavirus. I mean, this is absurd. Uh, th this is just total nonsense. Lemon water doesn't do anything. And you have all of these nonsensical products out there too, like this one, Airborne. Helps support your immune system. Now that's kind of a, a, a weasel claim, you know? Uh, what do we mean by a weasel claim? It, it's, it's, a, it's a claim that, that uh, <clears throat> is not absolutely meaningless theoretically, but it is meaningless in a practical way. What they are playing up here is, in this case, as you can see, it's the vitamin C that they, they are, are playing up. Uh, it is unquestionably true that if you are totally deficient in vitamin C, your immune system will not function properly. The whole body will not function properly. So it is literally true that vitamin C supports the immune system because without it, it doesn't work properly. There's many other systems in the body with, without specific vitamins don't work properly. But the insinuation here is that therefore, if you take a supplement of this, 
it is going to boost your immune system activity. And that just is not the case. There's certainly no evidence for that. Now, airborne was invented by an elementary school teacher. And uh, somehow she just hit it with this. I, it's hard to understand why. There was never anything uh, of any value in there that had ever been proven scientifically. It was just a, basically a, a vitamin mineral supplement with some herbs in there. But it was very clever advertising. And once again, you know, the, the, the suggestion is that, that it has have some kind of effect on the immune system for which there's just no evidence. Uh, they did pay a price at least once because of their over vigorous advertising and, and they paid out quite a bit, 23 million in a lawsuit. But if they had to pay out that much, you can imagine how much they were raking in with this. And Airborne is still out there on the market making, um, very carefully making all kinds of claims, uh, but the claims are not, uh, not justified. There are spices and various kinds of plant extracts that also constantly promote themselves as immune boosters and turmeric is, is, is one. Now, once again, turmeric uh, is, is not uh, total nonsense scientifically in, in terms of the effect it can have because it does contain a compound called curcumin and when you go into the laboratory and you carry out experiments in a test tube or in a Petri dish, whereby you expose cells or in some cases animals to uh, curcumin and you measure what happens, you can get some positive results. But here too, in general, the amounts of curcumin that are used are way more than what anyone would get from putting a little turmeric spice into their food. There are studies underway using large doses of curcumin in a pill form. We'll see where that leads. So far, the evidence is, is not, not very good. But COVID-19, of course, has, has um, opened the door to the marketing of these things to the extent that the World Health Organization had to step in and say that, no, eating lemon and turmeric or mango can't prevent the coronavirus because this has been promoted. Other things like garlic. Garlic is certainly good in, in, in providing taste for many, many dishes. Uh, it may have some health properties, but the only thing that we know for sure is that it keeps vampires away. You can make a case for so many different foods, which really is not scientific, but which you can make to sound compelling. For example, chicken soup, very often referred to as Jewish penicillin. It was first introduced about 800 years ago by Moses Maimonides, philosopher, physician, who thought that chicken soup was uh, an effective remedy for various diseases. And this has been handed down through history and a lot of folklore has grown up over it. And, you know, it's the old story of the grandmother going out and selecting a, a fine chicken and then going to the vegetable store and uh, getting those carrots and the parsnips, which of course are very important, the celery root, the celery itself. Uh, you can uh, also put in some, some turnips, uh, whatever vegetable you think of together with the chicken. And then you try it out on your son-in-law 
and see what happens. Well, of course, that's not a very scientific way of going about it. But scientists have looked at it. Here, published in a very reputable journal called Chest, uh, they looked at drinking hot water and actually other hot beverages as well, as opposed to cold water and chicken soup to see what the effect would be. And what they measured was nasal mucus velocity. Not a particularly pleasant kind of experiment, one would think, where you're taking, taking a look at how fast schnauz flows out of the nose. And they measured this. <clears throat> Because of course, when you get a stuffy nose with, with the uh, stuff not coming out, that's when you get bad symptoms. So they actually studied this. What did they find? That chicken soup was actually better. It was better than hot water, better than other hot beverages because the flow out of the nose of the mucus <clears throat> was faster. Now, if you look at the numbers here, you can see that this is not a whole lot of difference. It was enough of a difference to allow for a scientific publication. But does anyone think that this is going to have practical significance? Does it really matter if you get a slightly faster mucus flow rate? So Campbell's has not bought into this, and this is why we don't have Dr. Campbell's uh, uh, chicken soup. If there were something to this, perhaps eventually there could be an extract of, of, of chicken soup and uh, see whether or not that would do anything. But of course, chicken soup is a very complex commodity, obviously. Uh, there are hundreds of different compounds in there. One thing we know is that if you make it right, it tastes good. And that's enough of a reason to, uh, to eat it. So what are we left with here? Well, hopefully we left, are left with some education and that you know more to now about what inflammation is than you knew before. You know there's a difference between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is something that we want to avoid, although it's not so easy to avoid it. However, uh, eating the right diet can have an effect on chronic inflammation. And we looked at what that right diet is. It's the kind of diet that we've been recommending for many other reasons. It is the classic Mediterranean diet. And of course, when you couple it with exercise, that's when you begin to see results. That's when you can deal with that uh, chronic uh, low level uh, inflammation. So once again, there's no magic here. Uh, but a diet that's heavy in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, olive oil seems to be the best kind of, of fat. And of course, couple that with exercise and uh, you are on the right uh, track. So once again, a lot of other information out on our website uh, and you can check that out. And you can also sign up for a free weekly newsletter by going to the, uh, uh, the website. So that's, uh, that is it. If there are any uh, questions, uh, certainly we can uh, 